welcome to my hearth. Now, in the last episode, we were talking about the parades through the town being done by the guilds and how they were representing stories from the Bible. These eventually became organised into cycles of plays, which we call the mystery plays. They're called the mystery plays because they're dealing with the mystery of the life of Christ, and they came in three sections. The first section was called the Nativity, because that dealt with all the episodes in the Bible that led up to the Nativity of Christ. So the last play was the birth of Christ. All the plays before that were the forerunners of Christ in the Old Testament leading up to the Nativity itself. The second section was known as the Passion, and that was a very, very dramatic storytelling because it dealt with Holy Week, that dealt with Palm Sunday to the crucifixion. And the final section dealt with the events after the crucifixion, including the ascension of Christ, but also up to the time of Revelation, which in medieval times was known as Doomsday. So that section was called the Doomsday section. All these cycles of plays which are called the mysteries, we know about because we've got copies of them. They were produced regularly, especially in the north of England. We've got the Chester cycle, the Wakefield cycle, and the York cycle of plays. Now, because we're dealing with types of Christ, what I want to really concentrate on today are the forerunners of types of Christ. I need to clarify that a little bit. What I'm talking about is the stories in the Old Testament which are connected with Christ in the New Testament. They are forerunners. They have an element of prophecy in them or contain elements of types of Christ within them. Now, immediately, a question comes up. Were these little plays that were being performed by ordinary people in towns in the north of England, were they like a Cecil B. DeMille biblical epic from the 20s to the 50s in Hollywood? And of course the answer is no. The plays were being performed by ordinary people. They were trying to tell their particular part of the story to other ordinary people. And remember, they're ordinary medieval people. They are not attempting to be biblical people. They're not acting out being from the time of Christ or the time of the Old Testament. They're actually being like people who are ordinary medieval people. In fact, very often very ordinary medieval work people they are going to be representing people who are very close to themselves. In terms of storytelling, they are going to be very relevant, they're going to be relating to their audience, and the audience would recognise the characters in front of them as being like people that they knew. 
because the guilds who were putting on the plays were all male, a lot of the characters were going to be men, but if if they needed a female character, they would use one of the young apprentices whose voice hadn't broken to enact that particular part of the story. The stories were going to be very powerful for the audience. They spent their lives soaked in stories from the Bible. They went to church, they saw the images of the stories of the Bible in churches, and they had a strong faith and belief in what they were understanding and believing from them. However, the actual miracle plays are not verbatim texts taken from the Bible. Remember that in medieval times, the Bible they were receiving was in Latin, not in the mother tongue. The plays were in medieval English, and so they are automatically an interpretation of what the actors understood the story in the Bible to be. They didn't always get it right. But that was its power. It was already being interpreted by the actors from the original Latin. And then the audience would hear it, and they would add another level of meaning to it by what they were hearing. If the members of the Guild had been to school in any way, they might have learnt to read, but we can't assume that. I am suggesting that quite a few of the actors couldn't read. Therefore, they would have to be taught the lines, and the easiest way to do that was to have all the text in verse. Verse is much easier to learn than prose, because the rhymes itself give you hints and clues. Our earliest stories that we hear are very often nursery rhymes. And what we're enjoying, as well as the actual story itself, is the sound of the verse, which is of itself comforting and memorable. So we have these plays, which are in verse, in English, being performed for other work people in the town, about the stories from the Old Testament which foretell the coming of Christ. I'm only going to consider three of them today. The story of Adam and Eve, the story of Noah, and the story of Abraham and Isaac. The story of Adam and Eve has such wonderful elements in it, in terms of storytelling. As we go through it, I want you to have a think about the effect of this particular story on all other storytelling. First of all, it's a creation story. The story of Adam and Eve itself is the last part of God's creation in the beginning of the Bible. Humans are the last creatures to be created. We've already got them existing in a paradise. The image of a paradise is so strong in storytelling. A paradise 
is where we all want to be and we've all got our own versions of paradise. So when we talk about Adam and Eve existing in a paradise garden, we've all got our own version of what that might be. There is also the relationship between God and Adam and Eve and that's like a family, that's like a father with his children discussing, teaching. As they talk with God, that's a storytelling trope, which is the journey from innocence to experience, from youth to maturity. They are apprentices to God and are learning the ways of life. The relationship between Adam and Eve forms the basis of all relationships in stories. It's to do with love and friendship and existing together. They have children. They become parents. So they are living in the ultimate paradise. They have brilliant relationships with each other and with God. And all seems to be well. The beginning of an ideal story where a couple are living the absolute dream life. However, something then happens and that we then get the arrival of Satan in the form of a snake. What amazing imagery that is. Not only that, it's a snake that can talk. And we'll come back to that image later. Now there are rules in this garden. The main one being is that Adam and Eve could eat from anything in the garden apart from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. What amazing images of storytelling. We're literally dealing with forbidden fruit. You have everything going for you. You're living in paradise with a person you love and you are friends with God. And the only thing that you must not do is eat of a certain tree. There is a rule which must not be broken. Great storytelling idea. Think of how many stories there are where somebody tells someone else you can do whatever you like, but don't go there. That's everything from Duke Bluebeard telling his new wife, you can go anywhere but don't unlock that door, to Maxim de Winter and Mrs. Danvers telling the new Mrs. de Winter not to go into a certain wing of the house. It's mythic storytelling to say, here's the rule, don't break it. Sleeping beauty, do not touch anything sharp. Not only that, but you have an agent of evil, in this case the devil in the form of a serpent, who is tempting you to break the rule. It's egging you on to do that which you should not 
do. Now remember, all great storytelling has the three great Greek levels in it of physical, emotional and spiritual. And in this case of the temptation, they work on all of those levels. Eating the fruit is a physical thing. Being tempted to it is an emotional thing. And breaking God's law is a spiritual thing. Therefore, for any listener or reader that comes across this story, it's going to have great power and potency for them. Not only that, but you've got the action and reaction of what happens. They've been told you can do anything you like apart from eating the fruit. So therefore, there are going to be consequences. You do this, there will be consequences. Just as a sideline, and why wouldn't there be sidelines in my podcast? It's interesting that the medieval church included the idea that the fruit of the tree was an apple. But that's not what it says in the Bible. It just says the fruit of the tree. It doesn't say it is an apple. Of course, it could be an apple. But there was a reason why the medieval church wanted it to be an apple, because apples were so strong in Greek storytelling. We talked about the judgment of Paris. There are other incidences in Greek storytelling where an apple plays a part. And all the time, the medieval church wants to discredit Greek storytelling, because for them, it's paganism. So those lovely medieval images of Adam and Eve with an apple are purely medieval ideas. Now remember, the world is perfect. It is a paradise for Adam and Eve. And as soon as the apple is eaten, then everything is destroyed. Loads of basic storytelling is based on this idea of something happening and a paradise being destroyed. Not only that, but Adam and Eve try and hide what they have done from God, hiding their sins. They know they have done wrong, and they want to try and hide it from God, who, of course, it's impossible to do that. They know that they are naked. They didn't know that before because they were in paradise. They know they have to cover themselves, and they know they are going to fall out with God. We call this process the fall, the fall from grace of Adam and Eve. It is sometimes called original sin, and we are supposed to all be born with it as descendants from Adam and Eve. All humans are flawed as a result of the action of Adam and Eve, our forefathers. The fall is created by the devil, who has tempted us into sin. Adam and Eve are thrown out of the garden. It's what Milton later called Paradise Lost. Now, why does it come into the category of a forerunner of Christ? Well, for the simple reason that 
without Adam and Eve, if they hadn't done anything wrong and we were all still living in the Garden of Eden and in paradise, then we wouldn't have needed Christ to come and atone for that particular sin. We'd all still be there. There's a great tendency at the moment to write what we now call what-if stories. What if Adam and Eve hadn't eaten of the fruit? What would life have been like? That would be a very interesting story. All of those images of ideal worlds, of paradises, of gardens of Edens, which are then lost, are very strong in storytelling. I'll continue with the other forerunners in the Old Testament next time.